This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Raphael P. Roman. Every siren in New York City has a story, and of the nearly 300 emergency calls that are made every hour, many involve people in desperate need of life-saving care. New York healthcare workers face overwhelming challenges responding to these emergencies, yet they manage to keep the city's heart beating while at the same time attempting to balance their own personal lives. Emergency NYC, a new docuseries now streaming on Netflix, is taking us inside their world and that of their patients. The show is a window into the country's growing healthcare crisis, which has been exacerbated by COVID and the exploding gun violence epidemic. Here's a clip. He's a 17-year-old male coming in with two entrance wounds. I have a 27-year-old female complaining. Every call is a new story. Okay, tell me exactly what happened. You encounter so many different situations, you know, people's lives. You just almost go into autopilot. I don't feel I'm very decisive in those moments. That commitment to the life of another human being is something that we make. We're talking life and death. A lot of times you don't get a second chance, so your intervention may save a life. Transport is coming. This is a five-month-old that had a cardiac history. He caught RSV, so he's extremely sick and uh, critical at this time. It definitely makes you think in how much you need to be here, 100% body and mind, to make that difference in somebody's day. I thought I had everything under control. Sirens are the soundtrack of the city, and many of those sirens are people in need. You can make a lot of assumptions just based on them telling you what their background is. And in the end, you get to spend a very short amount of time with them and connect with them. People from all over the world, different cultures, all coming together. It makes being a healthcare worker in New York one of the most challenging things. We're going to fight as hard as we can. And joining us now are the filmmakers and executive producers of Emergency NYC, Ruthie Schatz and Adi Baraj, and two of the principal doctors featured in the series, Dr. David Langer, chairman of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital, and John Bukvar, vice chairman of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill. Welcome, all of you. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you all here with us. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. So uh, let me start with the filmmakers. Ruthie, you begin, and, 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 and Adi, you, you chime in if you wish. You know, as successful filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, I'm guessing that you can pretty much, you know, explore any subject that you want. Uh, so what moved you to invest so much of yourself, so much time, energy, resources, I'm sure, um, 
In exploring the exceedingly hectic and complex medical world of New York City, first in your docuseries Lennox Hill and now in Emergency NYC. Um, the world of medicine and hospitals is an endless palette for uh, content, first of all. And the things that you're seeing and you encounter, the scenes that you encounter, the people, um, the situations are so riveting and so life-affirming that it's it's kind of addictive. You know, it's really hard to um, to be well into these subjects and then go and do something else because the meanings of what you're touching upon, um, the subjects, um, those people, um, it's very, very difficult to compare it to anything else. Um, touching life and death, um, facing situations that are so complex, people that are sacrificing their lives for someone else. These are, I think, the extremity of humanity. And um, for us as filmmakers, it's it's a haven as, as much as it's difficult and painful. Um, it's an endless place for content and uh, storytelling. Adi, anything to add? Yeah, and when you add it together with um, the doctors that, you know, lead you through this, so you get kind of all these worlds combined into, um, you know, um, many layers that are super reflective on the times that we are in and, you know, of uh, people who come in super motivated for what they do. And it's, um, you know, it's the extremities of these dramatic moments that draw us in. And they're very cinematic and, and meaningful. Let me move on to the doctors. This is for both of you, David and John. Let me start with you, David. Um, what convinced you? What? Why did you decide to participate in, in this project first in Lenox Hill and then in Emergency NYC? Did you think it was a great idea from the outset or did it take some convincing? It was John's idea. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, look, I, it was all luck, basically. And and uh, Ruthie and Adi found me through uh, when my old fellow had been in the, the, a similar show in Israel. And it was just they came to Erez and said, we want to do the show in New York uh, after being so successful in Israel. And Erez had just started his career and, and referred them to me. Um, why? You know, I, I think we did it for my kids. I tell everybody that it's true. You know, I wanted to. First of all, I knew John and I had developed something fantastic that there was nothing like us um, but it's hard to, to get above the sand barrier in this town and um this would be the ideal way to reveal ourselves and be truthful and a lot of medical shows aren't truthful they're emotionally dishonest they're staged and the doctors very often aren't honest or uh, don't uh, show vulnerability or show what really goes on if they maybe they aren't vulnerable in the first place but mm -hmm. I know that John and I have developed a, a program and a, and a department here that's exceptional. And it's new. And so what better way to, you know, show the world we're doing than we didn't know it was Netflix at the beginning. It was, you know, they were still hadn't pitched the show. Mm -hmm. But after meeting the two of them at a Greek restaurant on the Upper East Side, I'm like, I'm in. And I, I'm implicitly trustworthy. I trust everybody. Uh, John, you know, he's more kind of a little bit more questioning than well, I am. Well, John. A good hey, were, you, were you more questioning? Did you have more doubts? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and... I, you know, I just inherently um, was a little bit more apprehensive about the response to our transparency. I echo what David said, which is 
we have a, a unique relationship between the two of us, the way we talk to patients. I think we both lost our fathers at young ages. So we have this empathy that we watched our fathers both personally and professionally deal with patients and then deal with disease. And that gives us a similar lens into what the patients are going through. So I knew, like David said, we we were special, frankly, uh, but I was very apprehensive about the, not on our ability to be portrayed because Adi and Ruthie are so amazing, but in this era of shade throwing, I was a little bit more cautious in my approach, but for the second season, I jumped right in. In emergency NYC particularly, but also, I mean, you are intruding the camera, right? You know, in cases where the doctors are are trying to save lives or the quality of lives of their patients, very hectic sometimes. Um, how do you make sure two things? How do you make sure that you don't interfere physically, that that you don't you know slow the process down where every second counts? And two, how do you make sure, even with the approval of the patients, that you don't intrude? more into the moments that are, have to be some of the most difficult of their lives beyond what they think you're going to do. How, how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? I mean, we've been doing this since 2009, uh, filming at hospitals and in acute situations. So we have some sort of choreography and also something very natural in our uh, the way that we are uh, conducting ourselves on set. Um, it's never a question anymore because we're so um, in, into win with their process and um, Adi is filming and he's many, many times he goes by himself into the OR or our other DPs and um, uh, he knows exactly what he needs to get and nobody noticed him. Um, it's just a matter of, I guess, a lot of experience and uh, sensitivity. And also, it's it's a process, you know, you tiptoe into this, obviously, from first to get consent, then you have David and John, you know, in their cases, which, you know, they, they um, are in touch with the patient. So it's a, it's a, a li- it takes a bit of a time. And then it's just, they feel that they're in a comfortable place. We're a very small crew, you know, it's only one person. So everybody feels at ease and the, there's kind of this openness and there also a willingness you find even at these um, um, hard moments that people want to tell their stories. They want to tell their stories and it's kind of reflective of where they are. It's reflective of their relationships or relationship with the doctor. So there's a lot of elements to it and we're super respectful. And I think that's where, you know, you feel kind of, I don't like, like to use the the term uh, fly on the wall, I never felt like a fly, but um, it's more like a, you know, a human presence where you feel confident that, you know, you could share your story. So, John, uh, you know, you, you came to accept this, but, uh, you know, after watching the two series, uh, did you learn anything new about yourself? Anything that surprised you? Well, besides my bald spot, um <laughs> No, <laughs> you're talking about lying. I was always sure that I, had, I always thought I had a full head of hair, but um, you know, David and I always joke. I love to watch David, and I cringe when I watch myself, and I think he says the same thing. I think that's you know, I I absolutely adore watching David. I, I literally will cry laughing or just cry crying. Um, but, you know, you do see, um, you know, the idiosyncrasies of how we talk to patients. I, I think I'm very attuned to the responses of my patients that I see from these magical angles that Adi 
I don't even know where the camera was that Adi can get these these angles. Uh, and so it's really just an incredible opportunity for us. You know, I grew up as an athlete and as an athlete, you watch tape. I mean, how many times does a doctor get to watch tape of their performance? And that's ultimately what we get, have the ability to do. And frankly, David and I have now, be, this has become part of curriculum across the globe to teach doctors, nurses, PAs, administrators, um, it's become, um, you know, part of a curriculum. So it's incredible to watch yourself and uh, anxiety provoking, but uh, educational. Yeah, I know how it is. So David, you know, the, the show, you talked about how other shows, medical shows have not been true to, to the profession or what your life is really like, the world is really like. Many reviewers compared this to a real life um, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Anything to that? Funny you should bring that up. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, going to your first question, this has been an incredible experience. And we've changed, John and I, for the better, I think. I've become, it's, 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 it's made me a better person, I think. And also with my injury, it's made me realize a lot of things. But just to give an example, uh, we were, the the first show was on was on preview. And we had a, a, uh, uh, interview by ETV or Entertainment Tonight. And the interviewer at the end said, you know, we're all done. He's like, hey, Dr. Lang, I just want to know, you know, everybody in the office loves the show and, and you're they, they think your partner is Dr. McDreamy. So <laughs> I, said, I was like, and what am I? And he goes like, I'm like that administrator guy. And I was like, I was like crestfallen. I was like, despite John's bald spot, he's a pretty, pretty good looking guy. And I'm like, I must be like chopped liver in this thing, you know? And I called Adi up. It was like my first kind of kind of exposure to public, you know, being seen publicly. And it's so funny now, it's just the opposite. You know, I, I revel in, in John's success and his, the attention he gets. Um, you know, you, you can see why people can, you, you know, attention can be a bad thing. Uh, people do funny stuff. You know, John and I have, it's not always easy. Um, and uh, having this, John talks about this. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do it with him and to do it together because we're basically able to enjoy it at its full extent because it's without John, I don't, I don't think it was been a bit as it would have been harder to enjoy it as much as we have. We really have enjoyed it. So, 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 so moving on um, uh, Ruthie, you know, COVID is definitely not the focus of the series, but, but it does seem to be ever present, you know, like the masks um, it's in the background and sometimes it emerges from the shadows. Uh, how different would emergency NYC have been if the city had never gone through the pandemic? In other words, um, how has COVID affected the health and the healthcare of the city? I think it brought a lot of fatigue um, to healthcare. And I think ultimately, you know, the show would have been even more intense than it is now um, because a lot of, you know, the cases went down um, as people were hiding in their homes. Um, it was still super intense and, um, and insane in terms of what we did and where we went. But you see the, the fatigue uh, um, around all the hospitals and you see people are worn down, tired, uh, feel unseen. Um, I think it was for us, it was super crucial and important to be able to document this time because it, it is it's a time of change. And I don't know if healthcare will ever be the same. Um, mm -hmm after COVID. So it will be very interesting to keep on following what's going to unfold. And, and, and Adi, how important a, a protagonist is New York City 
in the docu-series. I mean, if you had called it Emergency LA or Emergency Chicago, for example, and have shot it in those places, what would have been different fundamentally? Well, in New York, obviously, it's iconic. It's a character in the film, in the in the series. Um, you see it, you know, as you move between hospital to hospitals, you see the characters and the emotions and the feelings of each place. You get the sense that it, you know, this New York City is bubbling all the time behind the backdrop of the patients. So when we knew that, and we it was present also in Lenox Hill, but definitely um, a crucial um, shadow to all the episodes and um, all the cases. Yeah, New York uh, is one of a kind. The diversity in New York is is really a one one time thing. You can see it in LA to some extent, or in Miami or other cities, but there's nothing like New York. Well, I tell you this, I never knew how beautiful New York City looked from a helicopter. Now I do. <laughs> um, so this is for David and John. You know, there's a, in one episode, a character is introduced, she's a nurse, a helicopter nurse, and it happens to be the last day of her employment. And the reason for that is because she refused to get vaccinated, you know, because you know, she's a young woman and is, is concerned about childbearing. And there wasn't enough, obviously, long-term tests about that for the vaccine. And, you know, she's frustrated talking about how, you know, she's somebody, you know, who risks her life every day, at, you know, during the worst of the pandemic. And, and now basically she has to leave her job when she doesn't want to. You know, as a fellow healthcare worker, what do you think about that situation? And I want both of you to, to chime in on this. Look, we weren't getting the vaccines for ourselves. And um, I, I have a problem with that personally. I mean, I think you can argue both ways. I think that this is a public health crisis. And, uh, you know, you have to think macro here. Um, there is a small chance. I happen to be very close to the woman who the science behind this vaccine. I know her pretty well. It's, it's elegant and incredibly safe. Had I not known that, maybe I might have felt a little differently. So I'll give her a bit of a mulligan for not, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. But by the same token, there are mul multiple reasons that that's, as a healthcare worker especially, and I think that we have the responsibility to our, our craft, our patients and ourselves, as well as the greater good. And I believe that uh, we all should be vaccinated. And um, that's, that's just the truth, so. John, you agree? I agree uh, mostly. Uh, <laughs> I definitely agree. Obviously, I, I agree with the policy, um, but I find it unfortunate. And, you know, I got the two first vaccines. I decided not to get a third vaccination. I felt that I did not want that vaccine. But um, so there was a time where I felt that I could say no to the policy that Northwell was espousing. And I chose not to get that third uh, vaccination. And, you know, again, um, you know, politics aside, there's no doubt that vaccination saved the planet. And um, Kate Carrico, who uh, David and I, David knew and worked in her lab at Penn, um, really saved the planet. Um, so vaccination works. And um, it's just unfortunate because we all have our own personal problems. We all have our own personal beliefs. We all have our own personal stories. And um, they're like we do with the flu vaccine in hindsight we probably should have offered some alternative where she did not have to uh leave uh, the healthcare system in hindsight and that's much yeah, easier said than done of course hindsight yeah you know if, our, if, our, if you don't want to get the flu vaccine you just have to wear a mask at work yeah. you don't get you know severed 
So, so Adi, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, a big topic explored in the series is gun violence by by Dr. Jose Prince, which, as I mentioned to you before, I knew him when he was a kid, and I knew his wonderful father, one of the best human beings I ever met. Um, you know, but particularly, I think it's safe to say how gun violence is affecting young men in communities of color. You, you don't say it explicitly, but it's clear from the from the documentary. Uh, was that something you set out to explore, or was it inevitable because of the uh, because of of what the problem has become, especially here in New York and and in many parts of the country over the last few years? Well, it's a, a tragic, um, ongoing. Uh, problem that the U.S. is facing, especially the big cities and especially New York. And it was there before we started. And um, and we knew also from uh, Dr. Prince and from the ER staff at Cohen's that it is a big issue. And obviously one of the biggest issue of death in uh, youngsters and teenagers, this is the number one cause. So it was there. It was just a matter of will we happen to be there and be able to film it as it was, um, you know, coming in. Um, it is a huge problem, and I think the staff there are just so overwhelmed with this as well. Um, and you know, it's a portrait, a sad portrait of America. That's what it is. You know, the fact that you could go out and buy a semi-automatic gun like it's candy. It's uh, unacceptable. Why should that be? You want a gun? Buy a pistol. You know why should we have that around? Yeah. So we come came. You know, with a lot of, we wanted to to show that definitely in the show. Anybody else want to talk about that? I was going to say it just seems ironic that the same people that don't take vaccines are have guns in their house. I mean, it, yeah. there's just. And it's it's just the matter of just don't sell the bullets, you know, if you, or, or or separate the bullets from the guns, or keep them in a locker. I mean, mm. so I, I we could get into on and on about this, but you know, obviously we're coming. I'm I'm a liberal guy, and trouble is they don't show the dead kids in the movie and in, in TV. Mm. And if they showed, if it was more graphic, I mean, what a great thing about the show! You saw a gunshot wound, that blew people. Whoa, yeah. like that's what it looks like, and I think that's important for people to see. You know, Ruthie, near the end of the near the end of the film, Dr. Elliot Grodstein, a transplant surgeon uh, who performs miracles, um, says that every day he wakes up to news about war and crime and other cruel things uh, that depress him deeply. But that when he gets to work and sees all the people who sometimes put their lives on the line um, to at risk to help others in need, that that his faith in humanity is is revived. I think that's the experience that we who watch the documentary also get. Um, and I think the reason for that is because what really pervades this series that you just did um, is is humanity, it's decency, and dare I say it, it's it's love. You know, it, I mean, am I overstating it? Am I being corny, or or is this what you think as well? I like to start always and say, you know, I don't want to be corny, but um, yes, I think, you know, the world is is a, is in a mess, is a mess. And what's happening out there is very concerning in politics, global warming, everything you can think about. And after COVID, you know, the economics. And for us, I think in everything we do, even if we tackle really painful and hard subjects, 
it's very important for us to leave some kind of hope because we do have a very strong faith in the human race and we think that one person can make a huge difference. Um, and again, it's not that I'm not cynical or, you know, or use irony, but I think it is important to give people some hope. There's so much crap out there. Also on TV, there's so much violent and there's so many negative things um, that are being, you know, polarized too much, to my opinion. And I think it's important to give the other the other um, prism of that and give people some hope and something to link to cling to. You, you know, this is for David and John. You know, uh, Lisa, uh, a patient whose side you both saved, uh, said this to you um, at the end of the series. Quote, God has blessed you to save people's lives, and every day you wake up, you should always feel that you're doing your part for society. Um, John, you said that, that was one of the most beautiful things a patient has ever told you. Um, obviously, you guys were moved. I mean, do you know, do you wake up every morning realizing that, I wonder? No, I don't. And I, th I turned to David when she said that. You know, I, I think I said to you, David, I said, I think people are going to think that was scripted. It was so beautiful and so timely. I mean, I I continue to get blown away. You know, I get up from work and um, I don't expect to hear that. And I obviously uh, we we both approach our job with a lot of humility. And um, I think that is just something that I was raised to do. And to hear her say those words really was almost shocking to me because it did um, give me a lens into, no pun intended, into what she was finally seeing. Well, I, I'm gonna, David, I'm, I'm gonna not be able to get you in this because our time is up, but I just wanna say, I wanna thank you guys for you doctors for the work that you do um, and, and for you filmmakers. Uh, as well for allowing us to see the the good work that these good doctors do. Um, it, it's a documentary that could change your life, and I hope it does. I hope a lot of people see it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.